Let me add my greeting to the one you guys just received. What's up? Good morning. It's good to be here with you. My name is Ben. I'm one of the pastors at the church. It's my privilege to be able to be here with you today, worshiping with you, and to bring you God's Word. Uh, We've been in a series on discipleship, and we've been talking about um, what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, what it means to follow Him. And we've been focusing on seven core teachings of Jesus. And we've been talking about what they mean for us as individuals and what they mean for us as a church. And I don't know, do we have the little slide with the, with the image on it? Yeah, that's the, that's the follow me image. The whole circle is like this. It starts with come and see. And then we ask, seek, knock. Then we turn and trust. Today, we talk about what it means to follow Him. And I had a text picked out, but then last night I chose not to preach on that text, but to preach on four different texts. What I want to do this morning is to read to you um, every time... Jesus says the words, follow me, in the book of Mark. Each one of these texts uh, could be, have a sermon in and of itself. But there's something to be learned uh, from hearing them all together. And so this is God's word. We're going to be in Mark. We're going to start in chapter 1, verse 16. This is the word of God. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw Simon and Andrew, the brother brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee. And John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat, poor Zebedee, with the hired servants, and followed him. If you're reading in your Bibles, you can just turn to chapter 2, verse 13. He went out again beside the sea. And all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, Many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with tax collectors and sinners, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, 
Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And then flip a few pages to chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. Verse 34, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake And the Gospels will save it. Then one more from chapter 10. This is uh, in the middle of the story of the rich man who comes to Jesus and says, What do I need to do to follow you? And Jesus says, Keep the commandments. And he says, Well, I've done all that. And then this is what Jesus says. (laughs) And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult! It will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. And Jesus said to them again, and this is Jesus' awesome PR campaign right here. Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Can I pray for us? Uh, Gracious Heavenly Father, help us to learn from these texts what it means to follow You. Each one holds precious truths for us this morning. And You come to us like You're passing along the Sea of Galilee or something. And You see each one of us and You look to us and You notice us and you, You say to us, follow Me. May we hear Your voice and take up the call this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, what does it mean to follow Jesus? We use that language all the time. I'm a follower of Jesus. I follow Jesus. But in some ways, I think it's become a cliche. I think we've, we've forgotten what it means to follow Him. We've, we've taken that language and we've torn it out of its first century uh, context. And so I think a, a helpful way... To think about these texts is to ask the question, 
How was Jesus like a first century rabbi? And how was he unlike a first century rabbi? Because when he called to people and said, follow me, he was using the idea of a rabbi, that kind of relationship that a rabbi had with his disciples to say, this is the kind of relationship I want to have with you. And so how was he like a first century rabbi? Jesus was a lot of things. He was a prophet. He was the son of God. He was a shepherd king. But if he was going to show up at a synagogue one day and just hang out, the category that you would have for him by what he was saying and by what he was doing was rabbi. He would be rolling around from town to town with something he called his yoke, which was his set of teachings, his reading of the the scriptures and he was calling people to follow him in the 90 or so times that folks talked to jesus and reference him 60 uh up upwards to 60 of those times he's called rabbi or teacher and so people when they saw jesus they saw a teacher they saw a rabbi And this has a bunch of implications for what it means to be a follower of Rabbi Jesus. So a rabbi was just a teacher who would travel from town to town, calling disciples. And disciples were followers, students, apprentices. And it's important to know that being a disciple of a rabbi was the height of of someone's aspirations and dreams. Young kids in the first century, they didn't dream of becoming professional sports stars. They didn't dream of becoming movie stars. They dreamt of becoming the disciple of a rabbi. But not everybody could be a disciple. Very few were chosen for the task. Only the cream of the crop Only those who rose to the top of the Jewish education system could then be interviewed by a rabbi. And only to some would he say, you have what it takes. Come, follow me. And if they were to take up their call, that means that they would would change their life forever. They would organize their life around really three goals. And one of them was just to be with their rabbi. So to be a student of a rabbi wasn't to take class from, you know, 9 to 10.30 on Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays. It was a 24-7 apprenticeship. Uh, Following the rabbi wasn't metaphorical. (laughs) It was literal. You followed them around every day, three meals a day by the side of your rabbi, waking up and walking the dusty streets of Bethsaida or Jerusalem or whatever. There was actually a well-known Jewish blessing in the first century, something like, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. Because it was a desert environment. There were very few paved roads. And you were considered blessed if you were close enough to the feet of your rabbi that he would be kicking dust and covering uh, your person to be with your rabbi. 
The second goal was to become like your rabbi. Of course, not to just spend time with them, but to imitate their way of life, their character, their person, their way of doing things. Uh, You can think of a modern relationship between mentors and mentees. I think I thought about my relationship with the, the former head pastor of this church, Mike Shu, and how I just spent so much time with him, so much so that when I pray, I find myself sometimes using his words. I sometimes hear his cadence and the cadence when I preach. I am not him. He's a very different person than me. But his influence is felt when I'm in the room. And uh, that's what it meant. You were supposed to speak. Someone was supposed to feel the fragrance or sense of your rabbi when they were around you. So to become like them and then just to do what they did. Of course, to take their teachings and put it into practice. They would have a yoke, a set of teachings, and you would learn from them and memorize them um, and, and live them out. And ultimately, when they died, you would continue the work of your teacher. That you would make fishers of men yourself. That phrase didn't originate with Jesus. It originated with rabbis. It talked about becoming a rabbi yourself. Being able to capture the imaginations of men and women. And to continue that set of teaching in the future. So to to be with, to become like and to do the stuff that your rabbi did. I guess I go through all of that to say when Jesus comes to people as a rabbi and says, follow me, he's calling folks to that kind of life. Um, when we talk about discipleship, but usually we talk about it we have a very specific view of it in the modern world. We usually use it as a verb. Like, who are you discipling? Who's discipling you? And we mean by that a very specific relationship, like a one-on-one mentoring thing where you meet at a coffee shop and usually go through a book. And that's awesome. That's just not what Jesus was calling you to do with Him. He was not calling you once a week to meet at a coffee shop to go through a book with him. He was calling you to a 24-7 life of apprenticeship where you would be with him, become like him, and do what he did. Um, and so when he called to people, he wasn't calling them to get saved. He wasn't calling them to heaven. You won't find that in any of those texts. When he called to people, he didn't call people to a set of beliefs. And he didn't call people to a set of ethics. Those things were involved. But the most basic and primary thing that he called people to was a life of discipleship. To a way of life. And for Jesus' disciples, that meant literally following Jesus around. But for us, it means, well, the same thing. It just looks a little different. We're called to be with Jesus. 
to try over time to cultivate a sense of His presence with us always. Through the Holy Spirit to increase our sense of what it means to live Coram Deo before the face of God. And by spending time with Him, time and time again with Him, we're to come, become like Him, the fragrance of Christ, to ultimately take on His heart and His character, His compassion, His honesty, His forgiving love, His servant heart, His willingness to eat with tax collectors and sinners. People are supposed to get a sense of Jesus when they're around us. And then ultimately, we're supposed to do the stuff that Jesus told us to do. We're supposed to put His yoke on ourselves and put it into practice. The whole goal of apprenticeship was to carry on your master's work, which is to make disciples. I think Jesus said some stuff about that at the, at the end of his life, go and make disciples. But it wasn't just making disciples. Jesus was ushering in the kingdom of God. And we are called to continue his work of ushering in the kingdom of God. And so we're not just teaching people stuff. To, to have Jesus as our teacher is to learn what it means to be with the sick and to, to mourn with those who mourn, to engage in spiritual warfare, to speak gracious words to those who need it, to eat and drink with people far from God, to forgive and love our enemies, to practice simplicity and contentment and generosity in all things, to suffer for others, to speak truth to power, to practice nonviolence, to carry on the work of the kingdom of God in the world. I'm just saying that's a lot different from just going to church. And meeting with somebody once a week. The invitation of Jesus is to follow Him. The word Christian is used three times in the New Testament. And always pejoratively. The word disciple is used 268 times. More than any other moniker for what it means to be a Christian Second in line is son and daughter of God. We are disciples. So that's how Jesus is like a first century rabbi. But to follow him, you also need to know how he is unlike a first century rabbi. And one of the ways he's unlike a first century rabbi is that his disciples were chosen. They didn't earn their place through coming up through some kind of Jewish educational system. He picked them. Look at the think about the text in Mark. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting the net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Something revolutionary happened right there. Jesus flipped the script. First century discipleship 
was super exclusive and desirable. Rabbis didn't go out looking for disciples. Disciples were fighting, achieving, and competing to prove themselves to a particular rabbi in the hopes of getting an audience. It was like the ancient equivalent to applying to an Ivy League school. It would be like uh, getting drafted as a professional athlete. Kids grew up dreaming of doing this stuff. And so Jesus flips the script when he just rolls up to some fisher dudes and says, follow me. And it's not just the fisher dudes. Think about the next text, Levi the tax collector. It's the dropouts and the rebels and the outlaws, the leftovers and the ones left behind. Levi, the tax collectors were bad news. Not only because they were lining their pockets with your money, but they were colluding with Rome. If you were a Republican, they were a Democrat. If you were a Democrat, they were a Republican. (laughs) They were bad news. And he goes to Levi, the tax collector, and says, you, follow me. And he changes Levi's name. Who does he become? Matthew. He's no longer defined by his past or career. He's now defined by his rabbi. His call was the antithesis of being exclusive. It was for everyone. And so in the next text, Mark's chapter 8, Jesus says, whoever, whoever means you, whoever wants to be my disciple, whoever means me, it's like some Ivy League professor saying, whoever wants a full-ride scholarship to Yale, just text me. It's great. Who does that? Nobody does that. Jesus turns this competition for the elite into a free invitation to everyone, and he offers everyone this new choice identity of being called, of being chosen, of being His. He thinks that you have what it takes to be a disciple. Ever have someone just be proud of you? I feel like every human needs someone to look at them and say, you have what it takes. I believe in you. I know who those people are in my life. And when people heard Jesus say, Follow me. How would they feel? What would they think? All discipleship begins from that place of love, of being chosen, of being pursued by God. It's the first act and work of following Jesus is to cultivate that sense and that identity in our lives that we are loved by God, seen by Him, pursued by Him. Our discipleship is defined by His choice of us, His love for us, 
And the first work of being a disciple is to relax into that identity that we did not earn because it was freely given. You don't become a disciple to earn his love. You become a disciple because he loves you and because he chooses you. And you need to know that because the next part gets really tough. And so you need to start with the chosen loved stuff. You need to have that like in your bones because he's going to call you to some hard stuff. Because this is the other way that he's different from other rabbis. Other rabbis, you know, when you became their disciple, it meant life was going to become better for you. It meant worldly honor. It meant having a place of privilege and position. It kind of meant that you'd be, it was like getting tenure. You were set, you were set for life. Um, But Jesus, following Jesus, flips the script. You didn't get worldly honor. You got shame often. And you didn't take the first, like the head of the table place. You became last in line. And you didn't gain life. It actually says you lose life in order to gain the life that is truly life. It's what he said in that really famous teaching in, uh, in chapter 8. When he calls the crowd to him and he says, if anyone would come after me, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever would save their life will lose it and whoever loses their life for my sake and the gospels will save it. And of course, take up your cross here doesn't mean take up the sorrows that you already have daily and bring them to him. You should be doing that. But of course, to pick up your cross daily means to take on new sufferings and sorrows. Both in terms of the things that we're willing to let go, the things that we hold on too tightly to, and the new things that we're willing to undertake for His sake. To pick up your cross and follow me. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. In the New Testament, the phrase follow me occurs 15 times in the Gospels. And I invite you to do the homework of looking at each one of those 15 texts. Because in each one, you see the cost of discipleship highlighted. Either by someone who is willing to leave family and livelihood for the sake of Jesus... Or Jesus asking folks around him to assess the great cost of following him. And so for the first century rabbi, it was, you made it. Come on. Have your best life now. Jesus' PR campaign was just different. It was, come and die. You, you will have trouble. Oh, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's not all trouble. It's freedom and hope and resurrection and the renewal of of all things and the life that is truly life. But we all know the things that truly matter and that are truly worthwhile, to get them, it usually costs us something. Like love itself or friendship or marriage or being a parent or making art 
or losing weight, for goodness sakes, or pursuing a dream. All those things are costly at first. They include pain and struggle. And they are worth it. We do it because they're worth it. Because we believe the cost is part of the thing's value. And what we're talking about in following Christ, in losing everything, the carrot at the end of the stick is Christ-likeness. Christ Himself, greatness of soul. It is what you were made for. To be with God and to have a great soul. And that's worth giving up everything for. And so Jesus will tell stories about like a treasure buried in a field that a man stumbles upon. And when he finds it, he sells everything he has in order to get it. And the field is the human heart and the treasure is the image of Christ. In the kingdom of God. And he speaks of merchants searching for pearls of great price. And the pearl is found and the merchant sells everything in order to acquire it. The pearl is Christ itself. Himself. And could it be that selling everything is the discovery of a great soul. And a rightly ordered life. Following Jesus is freedom and hope and resurrection and the renewal of all things. And it's super tough. It is really hard to follow Jesus. And he calls you to do stuff. And that isn't legalism. That's the upward call of Christ. It's the call to greatness of soul. I'm just saying, I think we've we've made following Jesus about accepting beliefs about God and sin and heaven and about like saying a prayer about those things. And all those things are a part of what it means to be a Christian, but much more basic to the call is this idea of becoming like Jesus, of being his disciple. Not so much to, to have all of our all of our motivation being to get to heaven someday, but to, but to have in every breath that I draw more of heaven getting into me, more of Christ getting into my heart. Christ's life in me, whatever the cost, whatever I have to let go. I just think myself and so many in the Western church have settled for a gospel of cheap grace rather than the the high adventure of the high call of discipleship, which does entail hardship. I thought about it like this. In Christopher Nolan's film, Batman Begins, you have ever seen Batman Begins? It's great. There's this mysterious figure named Harry Bucard who invites Bruce Wayne, this billionaire philanthropist guy, And he invites him up the eastern slope of the Himalayas that he might dedicate himself for a season of his life to training to be a super ninja (laughs) at an ancient fortress and to join this group called the League of Shadows, 
which was all about justice in the world. Now I want you to, and it, the, the scene's so cool, it's like the montage scene of him training and becoming like this hardcore ninja guy and all the, the suffering that he goes through to get it. Imagine that the scene is different and that Ducard finds Bruce and he asks him about his beliefs and principles and he says, do you believe in justice? And he says, yes. He said, are you willing to say a prayer about your belief in justice? And Bruce Wayne says, yes. They say the prayer and he says, well, now consider yourselves a member of the ancient tradition called the League of Shadows. You would say, this movie stinks. This, that's not impressive at all. Or think about Luke going to Dagobah to find Yoda. And imagine Yoda sitting there and Yoda says, Luke, do you believe in the force? And Luke says, yeah, I believe in the force. And Yoda says, let me lead you in a prayer about your belief in the force. And uh, at the end, Yoda just says, well, you're a Jedi master. Good, go home. Go in peace. And I know those um, analogies may seem on the surface geeky or whatever, but I, can, I just think that much of what we call American Christianity, we often think about it in the same strange way that the church has a tremendous amount to say about belief and eternity and morality, and that's good. But we've created this paradigm where someone can follow Jesus, but outside of church attendance and some vague belief about the afterlife, their life doesn't look any different. And I'm just saying, one, that's foreign to the New Testament, and secondly, that's not a faith worth having, and three, the call is the call to greatness of soul. And it's a little like climbing the Himalayas. It's a little like joining the League of Shadows. In fact, it's better than that. It's about the resurrection of the dead. And it's about following King Jesus. And it's about the upward call of God in Christ, as Paul says. I thought a lot about Diedrich Bonhoeffer and, uh, you know, his wonderful book, The Cost of Discipleship. I think I just want to close with a quote from it, if I may. He's talking about the difference between cheap grace and costly grace. He says, cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy, which the merchant will sell all of his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ, for whose sake a man will pluck out his eye, which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again. The gift which must be asked for. The door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow and it is grace because it, causes, because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. 
It is costly because it costs a person their life. And it is grace because it gives a person the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it cost the God, it cost God the life of his son. You were bought at a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace. Because God did not reckon His Son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered Him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. Follow Him. Let me pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, give us the grace this day to follow You. Every day of our lives, we will fail We will fall. And your hands are always there to pick us up. But the call is always forward and upward to daily bear our cross in following you. May we be a church that does that. In Christ's name, amen.